Good morning. Let me pray before I start here. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people, and thank you for your story. I pray that you would help us to root ourselves in it so that we can live out of it as we go into the world. Amen. So I um, titled this sermon, What Kind of People, What Kind of King?, because I wanted to explore what the book of Ruth would have to tell us about what kind of people we should be, what kind of lives we should live. And there's a, um, there's a famous quote by the philosopher Alastair McIntyre. And he calls us human beings storytelling animals. And he says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself apart? I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself apart? And I thought it was interesting in the puppet show here that that principle was in view, right? As Grandpa helps Sally to discern what she should do in that moment, he reminds her of her story. He reminds her of the time that she had tried to ride her bike and how he supported her. He reminds her of the story of the time that she had to climb up this frightening canopy walk and how he was there next to her. And her understanding of what she should do in that moment is informed by that story, by the story of her reliance on her grandfather's steadfast loving kindness and support of her, right? So whether and how to trust her grandfather, it depends on the story that tells her what kind of person he is and what her history with him has been. And so I'm interested in the question of what kind of people we should be. In the book of Ruth, it's, it's, a, it's a short little book. We had it in, read it to us in its entirety um, at the beginning of the series here. It's a short story, but it's a powerful story. And it's, of course, one small part of a much bigger story, right? There's important stuff that comes before the story of Ruth. There's important stuff that comes after the story of Ruth. And it's that bigger story, of course, that we find ourselves in, that we find ourselves a part of. It's that bigger story that we tell one another, and it's that story that makes it possible for us to discern what we are to do and what kind of people we are to be. So because of the sort of storied nature of all this, I am going to talk a little bit about the background because it's important. Where Ruth falls in this larger story matters. It comes to this important transition between the period of the judges and the period of the kings, the period of the monarchy. And if you read that part of the Bible, there's an important tension there. 
It's pretty strong tension. And there's still debate among scholars about exactly how we should look at it. But the question is, is it good or bad that Israel have a king? Because if you read in Judges, at the end of the book, there's this refrain that occurs like four times. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you read the stories there, the consequences of that are horrifying. Um, it seems that that's a very bad thing. But on the other hand, as we move through the book of 1 Samuel, and the people go to Samuel saying, we want a king like the other nations, Samuel brings that request to God, and he says, God tells Samuel, they have, rejected, they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so it would seem there that maybe it's not good that they want a king, at least a king like the other nations. So what kind of king should Israel have? And whether, whether it's good that they have a king or whether it's bad that they have a king or neither, maybe it's more complicated than that and probably is. The point is that Israel was transitioning from one period to another and they were getting a king. They were moving from a period where God was king, exercised through the sort of theocratic reign of the judges, to a period where they would have a human king. And so the important question becomes, that being the case, what kind of king should he be? And so I'm going to propose that the book of Ruth has a lot to tell us on that front, and that it communicates its message in this breathtaking and beautiful narrative and literary artistry. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we'll come back to this, but as to the question of what kind of king, it's worth noting up front that the book concludes with the genealogy of David. Okay? That intentionally connects this story to Israel's most important king, the king who becomes a kind of, of symbol as they go into exile of their future hoped-for Messiah and king. So having said that, a lot of people have observed um, that Ruth is structured symmetrically. The overall structure of the book is symmetric. It forms what we call a chiasm. And then there's, within the book, if you look closely, there's lots of these little micro-chiasms, lots of these little micro-structures of, of mirrored parallels and imagery. There are some that, um, there, there are lots of proposals out there. There are a few that I found particularly helpful. I'm drawing heavily on those in this and tweaking them here or there and adding my own, um, my own observations. But this is, this is the, the work, what we'll be wa walking through here is you know, the work of a lot of different people. But I want to attend to this literary artistry and, and probe what it has to say to us on these questions. What kind of king? What kind of people? So this is a, an overview of the book in kind of the simplest way I could put it. It kind of moves from the beginning with Naomi being emptied, right? Emptied of a family, of home, of provision. She loses her husband and two sons. And it moves through the story all the way to her eventual filling. She's, she's provided with a new family, a new home, and, and new provision. Ruth is better than seven sons, it says, and she's blessed, of course, with Obed. And so to get from that point to the end, we move through this section in 1, 6 through 22 of, of Ruth's others-centered self-giving love. That's mirrored later on by Boaz's others-centered self-giving love. 
And at the center of the story, we see how God provides, right? We see the provision of food, and we see the provision of a redeemer. So that's kind of the, the structure, the chiastic shape that this story takes. And I think it's very purposeful. So we're going to walk through it in a little bit more detail here. The first part, the bookends of this story, um, and David has mentioned this, it shows Naomi going from emptied to filled. And just to point out some of the, some of the parallels between these two sections that show us that there's an intentional <coughs> um, mirroring here, there's an intentional parallel in view. In, in Hebrew, the, there's 71 words in both of these um, passages. So as far as the, the, the size, the length of these, they're, they're nearly, they, they are essentially identical. Um, in the first one, we have a famine in Bethlehem. And then in, that's mirrored at the end with a wedding in Bethlehem. You see Naomi bereaved of Elimelech. And then we see Naomi blessed with Obed. We see barrenness. Naomi talks about how she can't provide new sons for Ruth and Orpah to marry and, and provide heirs. And that's mirrored by um, birth. God, as, as God provides um, a new family. He provides a, a, a new um, son in the person of Boaz and ultimately a grandson in Obed. So, th so this is the way that the, um, the beginning and the end of the story mirror each other. And so the question becomes for us, well, how do you get from the beginning to the end? What do, what, what do we move through to get um, from that very hopeless place to a place that's so full of hope? And so to get through that, we go through... Um, these, these uh, next sections. And um, here we see what I'm calling other-centered, self-giving love of both Ruth and of Boaz. Some of the parallels between these that show us that these things are intentionally mirroring one another. In the first section, in 1, 6 through 22, there are three important characters. Orpah, Ruth, and Naomi. And one of them leaves. Orpah leaves, but Ruth cleaves to Naomi. She commits to her. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She, she commits and she remains faithful to Naomi um, in a very other-centered way. On the other side, with, with, with Boaz, we see a similar thing. You have Boaz, an unnamed kinsman, and Ruth. And it's the unnamed kinsman who, who goes away. And Boaz commits to Ruth. He commits to providing this obligation, this responsibility of, of serving as the kinsman redeemer. What I want to point out is that in both of these cases, there's a, there's a true cost to what these characters do. This is, this is costly for Ruth. Leaving her people and cleaving to, to Naomi would have been the hard option that she had in front of her. And that's evidenced by Orpah's choice to go back. And similarly, Boaz, taking this responsibility on, came as a cost to him as well. And we see this evidence by the other kinsmen's redeemer's choice to, to leave and, and not to commit to Ruth in that way, not to fulfill his responsibility in that way. So you've got these two parallel examples of faithfulness and commitment, of other-centered, self-giving love. And that's what the story moves through to take Naomi from being empty to being filled. And so what then does that filling look like? And that's what we see at the central part of the story. We see that filling take the shape of the provision of food 
and the provision of a redeemer. <clears throat> so there's a set of parallels here um, that scholar Stephen Bertman pointed out. Um, that I think are valid and they're important. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through these in their entirety. But basically, if you can see up here and just scan what's there, there are some real parallels. Um, <clears throat> Ruth's identity is, is asked and told to Boaz a couple times and, and those kinds of things. But, and so anyway, these, I think these are valuable and he was one of the first people that really was doing this kind of narrative criticism and pointing to the parallels in, in the larger story. But there's, um, there are some others that I also kind of observed as I was looking at this a little bit closely. And like the larger book is structured in this chiastic way where it moves in towards the center and then back out again, I see that same form in these central sections that have to do with Ruth's filling, or Naomi's filling, rather. And so... In the first section, 2, 1 through 23, they, they work down through to um, a kind of central point. And then in chapter 3, they work their way back out again. And so I want to walk through these different things, which are probably hard to read up here, um, but, um, and, and look a little bit about what they have to tell us, because I think there's some really, um, this is where some of the, the message about what kind of people we are to be really can can come out as the, the, the mirrored case of, of Ruth and Boaz um, are, are compared with one another. So the first thing that we see is, as these things parallel one another, is it's kind of a mirror of the larger story, right? The story goes from empty to filled, and that's what 2.1 and 3.18 kind of show us. It begins with Ruth asking Naomi if she can go to the fields and glean for barley. And at the end of chapter 3, it talks about how Boaz gives Ruth barley so that she would not go back to Naomi empty-handed. So there's this, this kind of um, symbol of, of, of emptiness and filling happening there at the very beginning and end of these two mirrored sections. And next we have another um, parallel. We have two similar questions that are asked um, of Ruth. Boaz asks about her, whose young woman is this, when he sees her gleaning in the fields? And then Naomi asks Ruth, who are you, when she comes back from the threshing floor? And by, by that she means, essentially, how did it go? Um, as, as she had gone to the threshing floor to propose marriage to Boaz, to propose that he become their kinsman redeemer, Naomi is saying, who are you with respect to Boaz? How did this proposal go? These are accompanied by reports about what someone had done for another person. So it says that all, when, when Boaz asks about Ruth, it says all that Ruth has done for Naomi was reported to him. And then when Naomi asks Ruth, how did it go, all that Boaz had done for them was reported to her. And these things, what is reported to Boaz, what's reported to Naomi, correspond to the other-centered, self-giving love that had come before in Ruth's case, and it looks forward to what Boaz was about to do in his case. There are then some examples of Ruth carrying barley and going into the city with it. 
In the first one, it talks about how Boaz lets her glean among the sheaves. She, she um, is able to collect about an ephah of barley, and then she, she took it up, it says, and into the city. And then in chapter 3, um, Boaz actually measures out six measures of, of barley, and it says he laid it on her, and then she went into the city. So she carries this, this barley up from these lower fields up into the city um, to provide for Naomi. And then we come to what I see as one of the starker parallels. Um, this is the one that really stands out as the most obvious in the two sections because of the, the similarity of the phrasing and the length of it and stuff like that. And again, it relates to Ruth and Boaz and to their respective examples of others-centered, self-giving love. And so it says in chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his hesed from the living and the dead. And one thing that's interesting there is that it's grammatically ambiguous whose hesed is in view. Is it the Lord's or is it Boaz's? Because it could be either. I think the story would, would, would push us to say that the primary person in view here is Boaz because of what he has immediately done. But the ambiguity is important because the way that God chose his hesed to Ruth and Naomi is through the hesed of Boaz. So you can differentiate, but those two things are actually one. Okay? So anyway, in chapter 3, there's a very similar phrase. It says, then, then Boaz says, so Boaz is speaking to Ruth. It says, and Boaz said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last hesed to be better than the first. And what he's talking is about is her going to him as the nearest kinsman is specifically to provide for Ruth's family, or for Elimelech's family line, for Naomi's sake. Ruth could have married for, um, she could have married some of the younger people in the fields for love or money, it says, but instead, out of her commitment to Naomi and, and preserving her family line, she goes to the kinsman redeemer that is Elimelech's um, close relative. And that is her act of, even in going to Boaz to, to seek him as, as the kinsman redeemer, she's acting in other-centered, self-giving love out of concern for Naomi and for her deceased husband. And both of these people are exercising hesed. That, um, that word, hesed, is what's highlighted in these, in these verses, as you know, in these calls that they be blessed by Yahweh. And it's also what I want to highlight, because here we are at the very center of the story, right? We're, we're learning how and what it looks like for Naomi to go from being empty to being filled. We see that this involves the provision of uh, food, as, as Ruth gleans and as Boaz is generous. And we see that this involves the provision of a redeemer, as Ruth proposes um, Boaz marry her as kinsman redeemer, and as Boaz accepts this proposal. And so it's in this beautiful story of God providing for Naomi, it's um, the hesed of his vehicles for doing this, the vehicles of his grace, Boaz and Ruth, it's their hesed, their steadfast love that is emphasized. And that's what hesed means. It's, it's translated as loyalty, as kindness, as steadfast love. 
And while probably other-centered, self-giving love is, wouldn't be the best sort of general translation of it, I think it very much is a good translation of it in this story. That's what's emphasized as these characters go about fulfilling God's plan to provide for this bereaved widow. There are a couple other parallels that have just primarily to do with the language, and I'm not going to talk about them in detail. But you can see how the shape of this goes to that center point and then works its way back out. But it's the way that these things mirror each other, the way that Ruth's hesed is emphasized, and then Boaz's hesed, the way that these two are involved in Ruth's filling through the provision of food and filling through the provision of a family, of a kinsman redeemer. So that's, I think, what the, the literary artistry of the book helps to do in a way that's hard to do otherwise, and it's hard to describe it in the kinds of terms that I'm using now. You almost just have to read the story and feel it, and let these things, and, and experience these things as the story moves through this progression. But the question is, as God takes Naomi from being emptied to fill, providing food and a redeemer, how does he do it? And, and as I said, it's, he does it with people who, through their own hesed, through their own other-centered, self-giving love, become vehicles for his. Now, you may notice that in the structuring of the book, as I've laid it out here, there's actually something missing. And that's, that's the last few verses of the, of the book, the genealogy of David. And so that epilogue talks about the generations of Perez, and it leads down to David. It says, now these are the generations of Perez, and it traces that from, from Perez to Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, and then the son of Boaz and Ruth, Obed. But then it continues, and it says, to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. So I said that I thought Ruth had a lot to tell us about what kind of king should rule Israel. What does this story have to do with a king? So what sparked the idea for this sermon, and totally changed my plans for what I was going to say, was listening to Dave last week, and, I, and, and he, he just mentioned Elimelech's name, Naomi's husband that the story opens with. And Elimelech means God is king, El, God, or, or my God is king, Melech, king. Obed, on the other hand, means servant. I mean, I know that some of you like, are, are familiar with some of this terminology. Technically, the noun for a servant is Ebed. Um, Ovid is actually, it's a synonym, it means basically the same thing, it means servant, but technically it's the participle form of the verb to serve. So it's one who serves, okay? Ovid is one who serves. So the story, moving from Ruth being empty to filled, moves from Elimelech, God is king, to Ovid, servant. The way that it goes through those things, the way that it moves from Elimelech to Obed, from God as king to servant to one who serves, is through the story of Naomi, through the story of the others-centered self-giving love of Ruth and Boaz. 
And with the genealogy at the end, we are told that it's the family of Obed, the, the family of one who serves, that produces David, Israel's great Messiah king. So what kind of king would this story produce? Seeing that he owes his existence to the others-centered, self-giving love of these people, it would seem clear to me that the story is suggesting that the king should exhibit that same thing. The king should exhibit that same other-centered, self-giving love. His rule should exhibit others-centered, self-giving love. It's also noteworthy that the entire story concerns the fate of a bereaved widow, right? Ruth and Boaz are the main actors in this story. But the question of the story is, will God care for Naomi, right? And if this story seeks to comment on Israel's king and what kind of king he should be, as I think it does, its concern for a widow's fate speaks to what the king's own concerns should be as well. A king who lives out of this story will care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and those in need. For he knows that his line owes its very existence to such as these, and to the other-centered, self-giving love that was shown to them. Now, we know, sadly, that while David sometimes lived up to these values, he failed on many occasions as well. And David's son Solomon and his son Rehoboam certainly did not live like kings whose great-great-grandmother had scraped by by gleaning in the fields and carrying the sacks of grain up on her back into the city. They were much harder on the people than that story would have led them to be. And the other kings after them only get worse. The monarchy failed to live out of this story. But that brings us to the bigger story yet. So listen how Paul opens the letter to the Romans. First three verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. The gospel is good news about who is king. And when the line of Obed failed in its calling, God himself became king. But what kind of king was he? At the Last Supper, a quarrel broke out among his disciples about who was the greatest. And it says in Luke 22, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. When God came as king... Elimelech, he came as one who serves, Obed. He came as the kind of king that the story of Ruth would point to. 
And so seeing that I'm trying to set a record for the highest percentage of sermons that quote Philippians 2, 5 through 11, let me now make another chiasm by holding Ruth up like a mirror against that passage. God is king to other-centered, self-giving love to one who serves. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Others-centered, self-giving love. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God is King, other-centered self-giving love, one who serves. In the story of Ruth, it's the other-centered, self-giving love of Ruth and Boaz that results in Obed, who himself produces David. In this larger story, Obed, one who serves, produces Jesus, one who serves. So what kind of people are we to be? What kind of people should we be if we have a king like that, who came and who served in others-centered, self-giving love? It seems, to me, it seems to me that a people who proclaim this, you know, one who serves as Lord, would take up his servant posture, would strive to live out of the others-centered, self-giving love that he perfected that produced him and that he perfected on the cross, that would seek to follow in his steps. So the question for us, what kind of people are we going to be? Will our fate be like the monarchy? Are we going to fail to live out of this story as they did? When we are confronted with the million choices that we face every day, particularly regarding the widows and orphans, the foreigners and those in need, how are we to act? What are we to do? Again, McIntyre had said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story do I find myself apart? Well, this is our story, and it has this kind of king. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example. We thank you that in our need, you came and lived among us and showed us what kind of king you were and what kind of people we are to be. We pray now that we would root ourselves in this story. We pray that we would live out of it as you did.